The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I think we are continuing on a theme. And our theme, which is kind of accidental, but it's pretty powerful, it seems to be body and soul or food and God. At least the past few weeks, it's been like that. And that is precisely what we're going to be talking about today. After the first break, we will be joined by Imam Soheb Sultan from Princeton, who's going to be talking with us about animals in Islam. And right now, we're going to be talking about food. I said body and soul. I do have a co-host today, Rindala Alajaji, who is a recent... Hey, Rindala! Rindala is a recent graduate of uh, Main Street Vegan Academy. She is also a student here in New York City at NYU, uh, and she's from Saudi Arabia. Have you noticed? Veganism is rounding the globe. And together, we are so happy to be welcoming our first guest, Dana Schultz. You know her as the Minimalist Baker. Minimalist Baker is an online community devoted to simple cooking from husband-wife team Dana and John. Dana is the recipe developer, content creator, and food photographer behind Minimalist Baker and author of a brand new book that is so beautiful. You know, I get a lot of cookbooks and I give away a lot of cookbooks. I'm never (laughs) giving this one away. Minimalist Baker's Everyday Cooking. It was born yesterday. And this is my kind of food. This is great food and it's foolproof. Every recipe has 10 ingredients or less, one bowl or one pot, and 30 minutes or less to prepare. Do you love it? Of course you do. This is why Dana is a mega successful power blogger. Welcome Mm -hmm. to the show. Thanks for having me, Victoria. It's a pleasure. So how did you start cooking? It was kind of out of necessity. I I suppose when I went to college and my mom wasn't cooking me meals anymore, I had to learn to fend for myself. And around that time, the Food Network was extremely popular. And so I feel like I learned a lot of what I know just from watching the Food Network and then just trial and error, um, kind of being out on my own in the world and learning how to feed myself. So that's kind of when I started cooking for myself. This is so interesting because I feel like people and women in particular who came just a little bit before me generation wise learned to cook from their mothers. And by the time I came along, the moms were going out to work. And now with your generation, 
There's the Food Network. I don't know, Rindala, you're 18. How is yeah. your generation learning to cook? Um, yeah, mostly Instagram. I learned how to cook from people like Dana from The Minimal Speaker. <laughs> so, yeah. Wonderful. Well, the way I found you, Dana, was Googling banana bread. And mm. I consider myself quite a good cook never a good baker. I wasn't a good baker back when I used eggs and butter and Crisco. I mean, I've just never really gotten the baking thing. And I saw this banana bread that you had, and it was so clean and pure. And I thought, this can't possibly be good, but I have all the ingredients, so I'll do it. And I have to tell you, even though I made it, it would have given Sarah Lee on her best day a run for her money. And (laughs) I've been a fan ever since. Thanks. Yeah, that's. I actually just made that recipe this weekend with a friend. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> so tell me, is translating from a very popular blog into the book format, how's it different? Why did you do it? Uh, why do we still love cookbooks? I think everyone, or at least the home cook, still desires something that they can hold on to and use and not get you know, like it's kind of difficult to have an iPad or a computer in the um, in the kitchen, and so I think people still crave the print cookbook. Um, the cookbook is different from the blog in that these recipes are a bit more approachable and everyday. Obviously, all the recipes are simple, um, but I would say the the recipes that I reserve for the blog can be a bit more sensational. Like, for instance, Snickers cheesecake. That's probably not going to be something that you make on the weekend, but the recipes in the cookbook are meant for everyday use. And so I kind of set them aside in that way for the book. I see. So when you talk about something like Snickers cheesecake, and yet I see that with the cookbook, it's 101 entirely plant-based, mostly gluten-free, easy and delicious recipes. You have a lot of stuff for people that have allergies and other difficulties. So give us your kind of overall health philosophy when it comes to great food. Sure. I mean, I think for me personally, I've always been lactose intolerant. And in the last six months, I've started eating gluten-free just for health reasons to see if it was upsetting my stomach. Um, It seems a little bit murky to state a health philosophy in today's world because it seems like so many people have such bizarre food allergies. And so I kind of feel like more than anything, it's just listening to your own body and um, doing research on what foods will make you feel good and nourish you. And for me, that's eating a mostly plant-based diet and avoiding gluten. But for somebody else, it might be different. I see. So Rindala was raving this morning about your photographic expertise, because that's something that she does as well. So how does that enter in, and how much of, of your success do you owe to the fact that you can really take pictures? That's really kind. Thank you. Um, I think I think that's kind of what sets us apart or what initially grabs people's attention. I recognize personally when I am online, it's stunning images that grab my attention. And so I knew that was something that had to be there for our blog to work. And so I had been taking food photographs for a couple of years before I ever started Minimal Baker. And I think that that practice allowed me to have kind of the skills um, that allowed me to take photos that maybe stood out more than other people's. And I just genuinely enjoy taking photographs. So I think that that's, that's kind of what has allowed me to continue to improve. And the fact that I'm taking pictures almost every single day as well. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was also wondering, um, a lot of your recipes are kind of like health, healthy, um, veganized recipes that are usually soul foods. Do you get a lot of, um, are they usually requests or do you just like say like make what you feel like you want to make that day like how do you come up with your recipes that's a good question we do get a lot of requests from readers so that's always fun and oftentimes it is something like my grandma makes this dish or I had this growing up and um please help you know please veganize it so I can have it um and so you know it does it some of our recipes do come from there and then the other part of it is just either going out to restaurants and trying things that I know I could either make healthier or entirely plant-based or um just things that I'm craving at the moment and I think that I'm kind of drawn more to recipes that are a bit more I don't know comforting and because I don't know I'm I love salads but I'm not really going to be I don't get super excited in the morning to wake up and make another salad recipe, but I do get excited about making some 
really amazing vegan biscuit or some decadent dessert, just because that's kind of where my mind goes when I'm thinking in recipe development terms. So what did you do before you did this? You're so creative. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I have worked at a lot of jobs. I have kind of a rich (laughs) career background, but the, the main things that I've done, I have a degree in communications with an emphasis in journalism, and I have worked in marketing and PR. Um, I worked for a health website that where I did web writing and photography. Um, I have worked at restaurants. I've been a barista. I've been a house cleaner. I've been, <laughs> I've been a lot of different things, um, but this is definitely the one that I enjoy most. And all the other things, it sounds like pretty much prepared you for this. I just love it how life works that way. I mean, the fact that you've worked in restaurants and that you were in the the health website, it's really funny. It's like there are no mistakes. So you do this with your husband and lots of women who are vegan or trying to be healthy or whatever complain about the guy won't do it. So Mm -hmm. how does that work in your house? Did you come along at the same time? Yeah, well, actually, when I met my husband, John, um, he was actually vegetarian and he had been vegan before. And so he was kind of the one that challenged me. This was like six or seven years ago to maybe think a bit more about vegetarian eating because I had never considered it. And so it hasn't been as much of a challenge as I, I can understand it can be for some people who maybe their husbands or their partners were raised like on a meat and potato type of diet. Um, but we really, we love to cook at home, um, vegetarian and he enjoys vegetarian and vegan eating. And so it's not much of a challenge for me. Um, but I do try to keep in mind, I love it when people comment on our blog that they fed a dish to their spouse or their boyfriend and they didn't even realize it was dairy free or they didn't realize it was vegan. Um, I try to make sure that the recipes I make would be hearty enough to satisfy a meat eater because I used to be one and I want to be just as satisfied, you know, as somebody who is eating that stuff every day. And so I, I don't know, I like making really hearty, satisfying recipes. That is so important. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day saying, I've been eating only vegetables for two weeks and I've got to go back to meat. I'm so hungry. And it's like, well, please. <laughs> you need yeah. some solidity. You need some calories. Yeah. Talking yeah. about satisfaction. Um, what's your favorite vegan dinner? My favorite vegan dinner. Well, in the winter time, it's probably the chickpea fest in June, which is in the cookbook. It's a really hearty chickpea, walnut and pomegranate stew. And we serve it over rice with parsley and fresh pomegranates. And it's a really nice, savory and sweet recipe. And otherwise, I love curries. I love lentil and chickpea curries, cashew curries. Um, and probably our go-to is a vegan tofu pad thai. Nice. Oh, mm-hmm. That sounds really good. It's interesting when you mention the curry. That comes up so often when people are asked for a favorite dish. A few weeks ago, we had on um, a woman who was actually talking about veganism and sexuality. And we said, well, what's your favorite romantic dinner? And she said, curry, but serve it outside, you know, in a romantic <laughs> environment. So why should everybody rush right out or rush to their computer and buy this book? Well, <laughs> I'm not such a good salesman. I, I think if, if people are interested in cooking and if they want to do it in an affordable and um, kind of time considerate way and they maybe aren't a pro, I think that our cookbook would help them get in the kitchen and feed themselves and their families well. Um, if they like simple cooking philosophies, I know they'll love this book. And if they're trying to eat more plant-based, then this is a great kind of way to bridge the gap from maybe the traditional type of meat and potato meal to a more um, plant-based option. Well, that is all wonderful. And I'll tell you that it would be worth my having this cookbook forever after for the vegan no tuna salad recipe. Mm -hmm. Because my husband went vegetarian two weeks after we met. Vegan took a few years, but once he committed to that, he was all in. And I didn't realize until I bought some of that kind of chicken salad, tuna salad stuff you can buy at the store 
that he had missed that terribly and didn't know it existed. So I look for ways to make it myself, and yours is the best. Yours is just stunning. Aww. We both think thank that. You. So thank you, and the tunas thank you, and the dolphins thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, Dana, here's to your continued success in making everybody happier in the kitchen and healthier all around. The website is minimalistbaker.com, the fabulous blog. You're going to love it. She's also Minimalist Baker all over the Internet, Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) Instagram, and all that will go on our show notes on MainStreetVegan.net. Click on podcast and you can get all that info if you happen to be out walking your dog or making banana bread while you listen. <laughs> Thanks so much, Thank Dana. Thanks so much, Dana. Thanks All for the having best. me, guys. <laughs> Bye. And everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be talking with an imam about how animals are viewed and one of the world's great religions. Stay with us. like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. notice that there might be something not quite right, but you just can't put your finger on it? We may describe it as an inner stirring, a restlessness, a yearning to find our way home to our heart and higher purpose. Some of us may feel like we are living on borrowed time, that despite our accomplishments, what was once so important to us now just feels empty and meaningless. If you find your heart longing, wanting, looking for a path home to authenticity and purpose, join us for transformation, inspiration, hope, and possibility. Move toward your higher calling. Listen to The Call of Spirit with Evelyn Foreman and tune in to Possibility every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central Time here on Unity Online Radio. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. And just like I promised, we're going to go from the body to the soul, although I guess they're just really interconnected. So, um, Rindala, who uh, comes from the Muslim culture and 
myself, who does not, are going to be speaking with someone who is quite the expert in this field, and that is Imam Soheb Sultan. He is the first full-time Muslim chapter chaplain at Princeton University in the Office of Religious Life. He's the author of two books on the Quran, The Quran for Dummies, which my husband and I are reading, and I have to tell you, this is a delightful page-turner of a book. I so wish I had had that book when I was getting my degree and also the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad selections annotated and explained he's also a regular contributor to the Huffington Post and to Time Magazine and you know who recommended him to us Ingrid Newkirk from PETA fascinating isn't it welcome Soheb Sultan thank you so much for having me it's a real pleasure to be on Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You are such a thoughtful person and such an incredible writer that I don't think that we could have found a better person on earth to talk to us about animals in Islam. But before we get into the animal part, could you just give us a brief explanation of of the history and beliefs of Islam? Sure. Um, You know, Islam, from the perspective of Muslims, is the primordial religion that the entire universe follows. Because linguistically, Islam means surrendering or submitting oneself to the will of God or to the teachings and preferences of God. And the theological basis is that the entire universe, whether it's the mountains or the small ants on the ground, are all in a state of constant surrender and submission, lovingly and willingly to the will of God. And within this entire universe, the human beings have been given the uh, elemental choice of free will. And we have a choice as to whether we're going to be in harmony with the rest of the universe in this surrender and submission, or if we're going to be rebelling against God's uh, teachings. And so Islam is really seen as the religion of all of the prophets and all of the messengers, and that the finality of that and the culmination of that uh, came with the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, in the 7th century Arabia. And he basically came to teach people how to live a spiritual and ethical and moral life um, as human beings. And in terms of the very basic uh, teachings of the religion, there are five pillars. There's a belief in the oneness of God. There's a belief, uh, and then there's a a requirement to pray regularly um, about five times a day. Uh, There's a requirement to give in charity to the poor. Um, And there's a particular percentage for each person to give. Um, And there is uh, fasting uh, from sunlight to sunset every single day during the holy month of Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar, as a way of learning self-restraint. And then there is finally the ritual act of going to the house of God, the symbolic house of God in Mecca, uh, to perform the once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage. Uh, That is a celebration of the unity of humanity uh, in their worship and celebration of the one God. Um, So those are some of the rituals. uh, But Islam, of course, is much, much deeper than that. It has a belief system as well as a spiritual uh, component uh, to it. Um, But all in all, uh, you'll find that this is a religion in which basically people are taught how to how to live as good human beings on earth. So your parents are from India and Pakistan, but you grew up in North Carolina and Indianapolis. So what was it like being a young person growing up Muslim in America, and how did you get to be an imam at Princeton? Uh, well, you know, it's a very interesting question because now when I reflect back on it, all the, all the dots uh, seem to, you know, uh, come together. They all seem to connect, um, even though uh, for a long time in my life I didn't know what I was going to do uh, with my with my with my life. Um, but I grew up, as you said, in Indianapolis, and I was the only Muslim in my school from when I was a young child all the way through high school. And so I remember even in the third grade having to play uh, ambassador of Islam to my third grade class. (laughs) Um, So there was uh, a young boy that I had uh, befriended by the name of Travis. And I remember once one day we were playing on on the seesaw 
uh, in the playground and, you know, randomly, quite randomly, he said, you know, my father told me that you don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Is that true? And I remember as a third grader having to really, you know, contend with that question and not even fully knowing what, what he meant by it. But when he said Jesus, I said, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure we believe in Jesus because my father and my mother always talk about Jesus, peace be upon him. Um, so, you know, uh, growing up in a, in, in, a, in a context in which I had to constantly explain my religion um, and be this bridge builder with people of other faiths and cultures um, was, I think, something that uh, unknowingly set me up for uh, what I do now at Princeton University, which is, which continues to be the same in many respects. Um, so my role here as the imam at Princeton University is to shepherd um, a a uh, relatively uh, large group of Muslim students from many different cultural backgrounds as well as many different sectarian backgrounds. Um, and so that's quite a unique task. And then at the same time to put on educational programming for the wider campus in order to uh, have conversations about Islam and Muslim cultures and societies. Well, they're so lucky to have you. I mean, oh, thank I could you. sit and listen to you for a really long time. Not to mention, read your wonderful book. So what does the Quran have to say about animals? Well, it's a really profound question in my mind, and it goes back to the first answer that I gave about even our concept of what Islam is. The Quran actually says that um, whether it's the birds that you see flying over you or the ants in a, in a valley, that all of them form communities spiritual communities just like human beings so the quran talks about the animal world as a very spiritual world as a world that uh in which uh, there's communication with god in which there's direction from god um and it is seen as um uh, uh something not only worthy of life but also something that is worthy of protection and preservation. So there's this really beautiful story of Solomon, who, of course, both in the Bible and in the Quran, is known as this figure who knows how to speak to the animals. And so there's this passage in the Quran where Solomon and his army are coming through a valley, and Solomon hears the ants saying, let's all get out of the way before Solomon and his army unknowingly trample upon us. And Solomon actually hears the conversation of the ants and he stops in his midst and he uh, and there's this really moving passage in the Quran in which he starts to 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 pray to God that to thank God so much for giving him the understanding of the language of the ants so that he did not uh, harm them unknowingly um, also when you look at uh, the teachings of the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him there's some really beautiful teachings about the way that he taught us to treat animals so there's this one example in which the prophet was once walking with a group of his companions and he saw that there was this bird that was full of anxiety and was constantly flying from one tree to the next and he could tell that this bird was in a state of deep uh, sorrow and anxiety and he realized that the bird was looking for its baby chick and uh, and and he became quite upset and he said who removed this mother from her child right um, and he and he really took his community to account for that right and there was another time where a camel comes running to the prophet full of tears and the prophet uh, you know, is known to have all of the previous miracles of the of the previous prophets. And so he, like Solomon, is able to speak to the camel. And the camel tells him that, you know, I served my master all these years. And now that I have come to a certain age, my master wants to wants to slaughter me and to sell uh, my meat. And um, and and so uh, the prophet turns to the master of the camel and says, you know, how much will 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 it take for me to purchase this camel for you? And this man, he was a devotee of of, of the prophet, and he said, you're the messenger of God. This is a gift from me to you. And then he actually established what was like the first 
almost like petting zoo, if you will, in the city of uh, in the city of Medina, where he had first established his community, and he protected that camel from any harm. Um, you know, there's another story of a man who was uh, putting a lot of heavy burdens on his donkey, and uh, he told that man that he said, "Know that you will be asked about this on the day of judgment. That God will ask you about 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 the way you treated your donkey on the day of judgment." Um, so our tradition is really rich with um, this idea of treating animals with um, the God-given, uh, uh, you know, dignity that they were created with. Right. Um, I was just wondering, I myself, I'm a very passionate vegan, and I'm always asked about how you reconcile the fact that um, although animal welfare is very highly regarded in Islam and in the Quran, at all the um, stories that you mentioned and how we should treat them right, but the Quran also um, contains several allusions to eating meat and animal sacrifice, such as in Eid al-Adha, and all those. Um, what do you think about that? How do you balance yeah, that's a very good question. And, um, you know, I think we have to be very honest in saying that Islam is not, uh, you know, traditionally seen as a vegan or vegetarian religion. Uh, this is a religion in which eating meat uh, has traditionally been permitted. Uh, so we have to be very clear and honest about that. Um, but I think that there are a few things that I would point out. One is that, you know, Islam comes uh, to... Uh, uh, to 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 people as a universal religion, and it understands that people live in different places and different times and in different climates, and so I think one very important thing is that just because the Quran permits Muslims to eat meat, it is not by any means you know uh, a requirement outside of um, you know the sacrifices on the celebrations that I'll get to in a moment. So that's one thing to to, to note is that it's. You know, you, you don't you don't have to eat meat to be a Muslim, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's simply a, a something that's given permission under particular uh, circumstances. And what's also very interesting to me is that when you look at the lifestyle of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, if you look at his diet, from everything that we know, he rarely ever ate meat. He really was a semi-vegetarian. And it was only on very, very special occasions when someone would bring him a gift or on the on the big, uh, you know, Islamic religious celebrations where he would eat meat. And even then he would warn his community about not overindulging uh, in that, you know. Um, so I think that, that there's a lot to take from that. In terms of the religious celebration itself, you know, it's a commemoration of the story of Abraham. And I would say that, you know, it's really trying to teach us about the importance of sacrifice and that one is not able to attain to piety without sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the story of Abraham, you have the story that instead of sacrificing his son, God gives in in place of his son, you know, these 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 animals uh, to sacrifice instead. And so. Muslims, I think, just follow that that tradition and the follow in the in the footsteps of Abraham, um, you know. Uh, but the the essence of the story is really not about animal sacrifice, but it's about um, you know the sacrifice of one's ego, of one's lower desires, of one's uh, passions, in order to pursue the higher elements within the self. And I think part of that is actually restraining oneself from uh, eating too much meat or indulging in meat at all. Uh, because that was not the way of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And unfortunately, in Muslim cultures now, meat has become like, you know, so um, so much a part of the daily menu, and it's really antithetical to the prophetic diet. Yeah, um, I was actually just going to ask, um, what, can an observant Muslim do some sort of sacrifice um, at this time, like since it's different than how it was at the days of um, the prophet um, that doesn't involve the death of an animal or maybe that like is there any other alternative for that yeah I mean it's a very good question you know see I think at the end of the day um, you know what we have to note about the sacrifice of the meat which is only actually even something that is 
prescribed to the degree that is prescribed in the uh, Eid al-Adha, right? The, the 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 Eid or the religious celebration that happens after pilgrimage, not the one that happens after Ramadan. Um, and uh, and and I think that the most important thing is that when one sacrifices the meat, the expectation is that one is going to distribute the food of that meat to to one's family, to one's neighbors, uh, and to poor people. And so I think that um, you know if if we're able to find ways of serving our family and serving our neighbors and serving poor people on that day, then we'll then we will very much be living in this spirit and in the footsteps uh, of Abraham. Um, I don't think I'm quite you know qualified to be able to say that um, you know one can uh, choose another uh, another means. Uh, to fit that particular sacrifice, uh, but 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 I would say that the spirit of it matters more than the actual logistical, uh, you know, technical details of it. Right. So beautiful. <laughs> yeah, boy, I'll bet Rindala would like to take you back to Saudi Arabia with her. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. So, have you done the pilgrimage? I have, um, you know, I spent um, almost six years of my life uh, living near the city of Mecca, um, and uh, I had uh, gone on the on the uh, minor pilgrimage and then the major pilgrimage uh, a few times. Oh, that must have been really, really extraordinary. I remember reading about when um, Malcolm X did that and and how everything changed when he was in that experience. It's actually a very profound experience, and in fact, one of the things that uh, that 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 I found to be really moving about the pilgrimage was that when one is in a state of pilgrimage, they are not allowed on purpose to even harm a fly. If you harm even a fly when you're in a state of pilgrimage, your pilgrimage is rendered uh, unacceptable before God, right? Um, and so there's this idea that, you know, and, and the pilgrimage really is calling us to our highest selves um, and the highest uh, virtues within our souls. Um, and so I think that's an indication of how much we should be respecting animals and all living beings. Yeah. Um, so, Imam, how did you come to include non-human animals with your scope of concern? How did that all start? You know, I think it began really in my own family. My family is not by any means uh, vegetarian or vegan, uh, but they really always taught me the respect of all life. And they really taught me about the sacredness of life. And they, you know, even when we did eat meat in our home, one of the things that my father told me is that, you know, the only way that you can eat meat is when, if you ask God's permission, like you can't just take 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 an animal's life without thinking about it, without considering, without uh, thinking that this is a major deal, right? Um, so I think I learned a lot about that from my from my home. But also one of the things that really affected me was that when I traveled to some particular uh, countries that I don't want to name because I don't think it really matters. Um, you know, I really saw sometimes the ill treatment of animals and it really saddened me a great deal because I knew from all of my studies and all that I was taught that it was so antithetical to the way of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And I knew that if he saw Muslims treating animals the way that they were in these particular societies that I was in, that he would be very saddened and very grieved by it. Um, and I thought that this needs to be part of the ethical project um, that Muslims uh, partake in in this uh, in this uh, time and era that we're in. That's always an interesting experience to go to a different culture and and see animals mistreated. I've been to some countries like that and countries that I really expected to have a higher degree of reverence for life than my own. But then what I have to remember is that in this country, we hide it. It's like the Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney phrase, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we would all be vegetarians. That's right. So I know that... Christians sometimes get flack from pastors or or others for being vegetarian. I I know that Hindus have been criticized for going vegan. So if a Muslim decides to become vegetarian or vegan, can he expect negative repercussions and what kind? 
You know, I don't know about negative repercussions. Um, I think there would definitely be uh, pressure and questions, uh, you know, from family and from relatives and from friends. Um, you know, it would be seen as unusual. Um, but I don't know about negative repercussions. I would hope there wouldn't be any. Um, but um, I think that it's still seen as something that's rather uh, unique to do among uh, Muslim uh, cultures that I've been part of, at least. Um, you know. Well, I read about one case. There's a man named Amir Khan, who's evidently very famous in India, in, in the uh, movie world there. I, I'm not personally familiar with him, but he decided to go vegan. And at least online, where I understand everybody's dark side comes out to play. <laughs> you know? yeah. People say things they would never say to your face. But people were saying things to him like, why are you trying to be better than the prophet? And, um, you know, he really had to contend with a lot of that. So is that a theologically reasonable position to ask uh, you, that? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, certainly once one makes a moral claim and, uh, you know, says that eating meat is absolutely immoral uh, without any sort of... Uh, you know, context or without any sort of, um, you know, uh, flexibility in that position, uh, then I think people kind of start becoming very defensive about it. Um, and they certainly looked at the example of the Prophet Muhammad, who they see as being the prime example of, uh, of, of what a human being should aspire to. And they say, you know, how can you claim to be more more moral than the prophet? So I can see how that's used as a defensive technique. But what I would say is that, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's what I would couch it in is to say that, you know, uh, what perhaps this particular individual is doing is returning to the prophetic way. Because if you look at the diet of the prophet Muhammad again, it was extremely simple. It was extremely simple, um, and it was. Um, it was it was a diet that we would very much consider to be borderline uh, vegan and vegetarian today. Um, so in many ways, I think you know this movement is is a return to the prophetic way and to really you know ask people why this indulgence with meat, right? Um, you have some of the earliest Muslim. Uh, leaders who were very weary about the role of meat in their society. Like you have this uh, caliph who came, uh, you know, soon after the Prophet Muhammad by the name of Umar ibn al-Khattab. And he was once making pilgrimage and he saw that there was a man who had, you know, a big round belly because he ate a lot of meat. And he literally, you know, pointed at his belly with his with his stick, with his staff. And he said, that this would be much better if it were on other people, meaning like don't indulge so much in in, in eating and in meat and things like that. You know, let you know uh, look after the welfare of other other beings. You know, um, so I think that um, you know I I I think I, I I you know I think if so if one claims that eating meat is unlawful. In Islam, I, I don't think that's an honest claim, and I think that's that's where people get into problems. But if one says that out of their own moral uh, concern um, and spiritual well-being, um, one wants to uh, you know be a vegetarian or vegan, uh, there's a lot of merit and a lot of uh, virtue to that. And also, we have to understand one other thing, which is that the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be upon him, he did not live in this time of mass. Uh, you know the, the 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 way that we slaughter animals in mass, and the way that we eat, the way that we eat today. Like I was listening to this NPR piece where they were saying an average American eats thirty animals every year, right? Uh, this is like mass mass slaughter and mass. Uh, you know, mass eating of animals in a way that is unprecedented in, in human history because of uh, modern technology and everything has become like, you know, from mass media to, you know, mass consumption. Um, and I think that uh, based on what I know of the Prophet's diet and his teachings, he would have a lot of problems with the way that we consume meat in the modern world. 
That is so interesting, and it reminds me of an answer that I've heard given by by Christians uh, who are vegan or vegetarian, and they're told that Jesus ate fish, which is debatable. But I I think it was St. Paul who said, all things are lawful, and you use that word lawful, but he said, Mm -hmm. not all things are expedient. And Mm -hmm. that just seems to really apply here, that you can, but do you need to, and do you want to? right. Right. You know, what's really interesting to me is that, you know, in the Quran, anytime it talks about dietary laws, it never only talks about permissibility, the Arabic word being halal. It always talks about halalan tayyibah. The word tayyibah means pure and wholesome. Like what's good for you in all of your in all of your being, your physical being, your spiritual being, your emotional being, and so on and so forth. And so I think that so often we just ask, oh, is this permissible? Is it not permissible? But whenever the Quran talks about food, it always talks about not only permissibility, but also purity and wholesomeness, which is often very much missing from our equations. Yeah, I totally agree. Um One thing that I was wondering about, um, many vegans and animal rights activists in general, um, especially young people, are um, atheists. So they see themselves um, as like they can't accept that there would be a supreme being or God that would allow the suffering that goes on, especially the ones, the the suffering that's inflicted upon um, the powerless and of those that said that God created them in his own image. So what do you say to them when people tell you stuff like that? Well, I think that, you know, within theology and philosophy of religions, you actually find there to be a great deal that allows us to see uh, animals as something other than uh, pieces of uh, flesh that came together by chance um, or that uh, came together through some sort of uh, chemical evolutionary method. Um, you know, we, we, you know, through religious theologies and philosophies, we have this notion of the soul, we have this notion of dignity, we have this notion of, uh, you know, God's uh, creation. And so even though many religions, um, again, permit uh, you know, the eating of uh, of meat. Um, they also give us a philosophical and theological lens to look at animals, uh, you know, as other than things that were just created um, without any purpose or meaning. So when, when in Islam, when, you know, God tells us that the the birds in the heavens and the ants in the in the in the valleys form spiritual communities just like yourself, you know that gives me a, a, a an understanding of the of the of the animal world and the entire created universe um, that I think uh, an atheistic worldview would not give me. Um, so I personally think that um, uh, you know that 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 it, it all depends on interpretation and it all depends on what you do uh, with religion. But it it, it can give one uh, uh, much basis for. Uh, uh, you know, seeing the created universe in a, in a very um, different light than as, you know, subjugation and uh, exploitation, which is the obsession of modern men in particular. So do you see working with young people at Princeton that there is less of, of this um, lure of not believing in anything? Uh, among young Muslims than than there is in the American culture in general? Um, You know, I think that certainly um, larger social trends affect Muslims just like they affect other people. But I do think that minority religious communities are able to... um, are, are able to uh, take a different approach sometimes um, because there's so much that they're already at odds with from the majority uh, culture um, that they are um, willing to be different, uh, that they don't feel that they necessarily need to, um, you know, fit in by uh, following the social trends and uh, times that they're necessarily living in. Um, but at the same time, it is a challenge, absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about it 
Well, it's interesting to me that maybe being in New York City, but I run into so many people who are actually surprised that I believe in God. They're like, you're, you're, you're not serious. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really serious. And coming from the Midwest, you know, as you did as right. well, I, I realize that you were in a minority position, and I guess I was kind of a minority as a Catholic growing up, mm-hmm. but nobody ever challenged me for believing in something that could not be explained uh, by a science book. And now that right. seems to come up quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think that um, there is a really, uh, um, you know, fundamentalism going on that we don't speak about too often, which is the fundamentalism of expecting for all of us to arrive at answers that have many deep levels and complexities using just one method, which is the scientific method and the scientific approach. Um, And the reality of the situation is that no matter who you speak to, people always believe in things that they cannot prove. One example of that is love, right? People are willing to do all sorts of things for love. People will do the most irrational things for love, but no one can prove that love is something that is real beyond a conception that we have imagined in our own minds if one uses the scientific method. You can't touch love, you can't smell love, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you know, conduct an experiment to see, to say, oh, you know, there's love, um, you know, and so I think that there's all sorts of things that we believe. In fact, every, every single day that a person gets up in the morning and gets ready for work or gets ready for school, they have faith in something. They have faith that their car is going to work. They have faith that at the end of, you know, working many hours, it's all worth it. And that you go back to your home and you put some bread on the table, that that's actually, you have faith in the fact that that's actually worth something. But you can't necessarily prove that using the scientific method. Um, So I think that, um, you know, I think that there's some very difficult questions um, about the um, trend of atheism that people haven't really confronted. That's very interesting that atheism can be seen as a kind of fundamentalism as well. You know, we know about religious fundamentalism, but I guess there's non-religious fundamentalism too. Now, you did a beautiful piece in Time magazine called God is Not Dead, but Our Ability to Be Aware of God Might Be. We're Mm -hmm. down to our last two minutes. Can you just (laughs) wrap that up for us in a very brief way? Yeah, you know, basically the the premise of that, uh, of me saying that, was that there's this really profound passage in the Quran uh, that says, uh, in which God is saying to humanity, Oh, humanity, what has deluded you away from your most generous Lord, right? And then many of the commentators, when they look at this passage, they say that the answer is in the question, that because... God has been so generous to us that often it is God's generosity and the gifts and the blessings that we should experience as gifts and blessings that we use rather as distractions and as, um, you know, indulgences that take us away from uh, from God. So I think in the age of modernity, we no longer live simple lives. We're constantly inundated by technology, by 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 radioactive waves, and we're constantly inundated by um, all sorts of things that just kind of keep our minds distracted from questions of ultimate truth and ultimate reality. Um, such that people rarely ever find now nowadays time to just sit and contemplate and think about their life, about 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 the greater truths and meanings of. They're just so busy um, going from one thing to the next and, uh, you know, enjoying one sort of uh, toy to the next, adult toys, of course. Um, So that was kind of the premise of of what I was getting at. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm so happy that that is out there for people to read. Also, uh, you can follow the imam on Twitter, Soheb N. Sultan, and uh, that information will be on the Main Street Vegan show notes. I want to thank you so much, Soheb. Uh, Thanks to the minimalist baker, Dana Schultz. Thanks to Jeff Comfort, our engineer, and to the lovely Rindala Alajaji. 
I am just crazy about this young woman, and I just want you guys all to know about her. She's studying applied psychology and global public health at NYU, and she has a minor in animal studies. Is that cool that there are some universities offering animal studies courses and even a minor in it? She's also vice president of the Animal Welfare Collective at NYU. And when I know that there's somebody 18 years old, do you remember 18? I do kind of barely who is this engaged it's absolutely stunning to me so thanks to everyone who made this episode fabulous thank you so much for having me well you're so welcome rindala and thanks to everybody who listened god bless you and eat those veggies Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Someone once said there are two ways to get to the top of an oak tree. Climb the tree or plant an acorn and wait. If we expect changes to happen in our lives, we may want to consider climbing. Plus, changes needn't be monumental. Sometimes it's as easy as an attitude shift. Life is what we bring to it. Do you have a job that seems less than exciting? When you walk through the door, bring joy with you. Life looks better when viewed through a positive attitude. Are you facing a health challenge or surgery? Get rid of your fears by focusing instead on spirit working in and through you. When you remember that with God all things are possible, your outlook cannot help but change. Today, wherever you go, whatever you face, do so with joyous expectations. Release your inner splendor and allow the light and love of God to guide your way. This Mindful Moment is brought to you by Daily Word magazine. Finding time for the positive reminders in Daily Word is easy with the digital edition, perfect for smartphones and readers on the go. Give it a test run with our 30-day free trial offer. Learn more at unityonlineradio.org slash dailyword. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace. 
and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.